You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. All right, then let's move now together into the book of Lamentations and let's open chapter four together. I want to, as best we can, pick up where we left off at the end of chapter three in what is the a corporate lament, a communal lament over the low point of the people of Israel, the people of God, and the story of God and his people in the Old Testament. That is, the book of Lamentations is a community lament written to reflect upon the greatest devastation that the nation of Israel had ever faced. It is the low point that God had delivered them from captivity in Egypt and, and then granted them a promised land. And as they entered into the promised land, instead of living in glad communion and dependence upon him, they turned from him and said, we, we want our own king. We, we don't want you as our king. And we want our own gods. We don't want you as our God. And, and so time after time again, in fact, over centuries, God sent prophets that you'll see throughout the the Old Testament, including what we describe as the major prophets. That is, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And and presumably in the tradition, or even by the hand of Jeremiah, after he has warned them for a generation, God turns them over to what they want. Essentially saying, fine, if if you want other gods, then fine, here, have that. And so the book of Lamentations is what happens when they're turned over to the gods and the nations that that worshiped them, then the Babylonians in 587 BC destroyed Jerusalem in waves, sieging, putting starvation as a torture tactic, and then destroying every large building, including the palace and including the temple. And they were utterly devastated, turned over to the discipline of God. So the book of Lamentation is a memorial, a reminder for you and I to simply stop and ponder the weight and the presence of sin in our own lives and its consequences, how it affects us and the lives of the people around us. In fact, over a third of the Psalms are classified as lament, crying out to God, lamenting what it is to live in a broken, fallen world. So my invitation for you is if you come in this room and maybe you have sorrow Uh, Maybe you have burdens. I I believe in this particular season, we're all grieving the loss of something. Then this book is for you. This is the the language that God gives us to cry out in pain. On a lighter note, as as we kind of dive into this, I think I... I think I invited you to this when we were walking through the book of Ecclesiastes, which has a similar invitation to sorrow over life under the sun, such that we long for life in God's presence. And I think I asked you this before we started a few of those chapters, and I'll kind of ask you the same questions. So are you feeling pretty good about yourself this morning? You feeling pretty good? Let's fix that. Beginning in verse 1 of Lamentations chapter 4. How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold has changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold. How they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast they nurse their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel. Like the ostriches in the wilderness. 
The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out He poured out his hot anger and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away and clean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near, our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom he said, we said, under his shadow, we shall live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, daughter of Edom. You dwell in the land of Uz. But to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. I believe this is God's word, and my hope for us today is that it becomes more than just print on a page, but it becomes the very voice and presence of God for us. 
In the first couple of chapters, the acrostic form of this poem, remember 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet that start every single line of the poem, begins to speed up and, and in fact shorten in this chapter. And while we were building up to kind of the climax of God's faithfulness experienced by these people in the context of suffering, now we turn back to the suffering itself. And we saw that last week, that that biblical lament, calling out to God for help in the midst of suffering is worship. Trusting in God in suffering is exalting and honoring to God. And the context for lamentation, you know, contrary to maybe the, the, what you would normally see, in fact, the most common verse that people would even memorize, you saw two weeks ago in the center of the book of Lamentation, is not that people experience God's faithfulness and love and mercy when everything's okay. They experience most, and this is the profound mystery, the mercy and presence and steadfast love of God in the worst circumstances. And so for the rest of our time in the book of Lamentation, our focus turns back to the worst of circumstances. And in chapter 4, we see kind of an invitation to lament again the nature and, and even the effects of sin on this community. And as we walk through that, you'll see there was different things that were, were drawn into focus, different people, different individuals. And, and here's what I want to land on even next week is that lament for the Christian, for the believer, is in fact the language of those of us who live in exile. These people lost their homeland, lost everything they held dear, and the language they embraced, feeling the effects of sin, was the language of lament. And I would invite you to consider, in Christ, as citizens of an otherworldly kingdom, the language of lament is the language of the believer living in exile in a foreign land. Living as ambassadors who testify and herald the coming king of of the coming kingdom, but but in exile, in in a place that we do not belong. And suffering is what reveals that we don't belong here. Suffering is the indicator that you and I were not made for this world. And lament is acknowledging the fact that you and I were made for another world. You and I were never, ever expected to become comfortable and enjoy or rejoice in the suffering in this world. Never meant to think that those things are okay. And so the book of Lamentation gives voice to, poetic, artistic, heart-wrenching voice to what it feels like to be experiencing deep pain. Now remember, though, that lamentation, biblical lament, isn't just crying out because of the pain, the problem that we see. Remember, biblical lament calls attention to what we call the problem beneath the problem. There's there's suffering in the world. Things are not as they should be. You and I know this, right? We don't have to go very far to look around and go like, that, I don't like that, or that makes me uncomfortable, or this doesn't seem good or right. This doesn't seem conducive to human flourishing. And and that suffering and brokenness that we see in the world is a problem. But lament is an invitation to see the problem beneath that problem, namely that you and I have rebelled against God. 
And so if you're within the sound of my voice, this is what I want to invite you to consider. Is it possible that the, the current pain and discomfort, your, your, your current discouragement, the, the, hopelessness, the hopelessness that you experience, the despair of life, is it possible that there's actually a problem beneath that? That you and I are longing and hungering to be reconnected with our Creator. So this language of lament is a way of prophetic declaration that we don't like the way things are. And yet we look to God and trust that he will deliver. We acknowledge the pain, but we also acknowledge the deeper pain. Not just that we suffer in the world, but that we suffer because we are disconnected from God. For the last couple of centuries leading up to this particular book, though, there's been a long-promised punishment. And so I've commended to you the language of Jeremiah and Isaiah and all the major and minor prophets. There's a long-promised punishment that's on its way for these people. Right? Come back. Stop worshiping other gods or else. Stop doing this or else. It's going to be bad. And what we see here is an outpouring of divine wrath. Did you hear that language kind of in the, in the latter half of it? That, that in the end, God gave full vent. He let it all out. Did not withhold He finally kept his promise to keep or to take sin seriously. And so he poured out his wrath on these people. And so the outpouring of divine anger was was simply a a part of the long-promised punishment for the deliberate and sustained rejection of God's covenantal provision. God had cared for them, and, and they said, no, we want other things. And the result was this desolation that Judah and Jerusalem were experiencing. And that devastation was comprehensive. Did you hear the implications of the Babylonians destroying everything? They were comprehensive. After all, if God's divine blessing for his people is comprehensive, then then you would expect the scope of his discipline to be just as thorough. The people had not looked to God for life. They had not hoped in the Lord for life. And therefore, as we saw in striking detail, death overcame them. Their trust had not been in God. But, as you saw here, this kind of imagined invincibility. This belief that we have everything we need. And as we walk through chapter 4... What you found, I hope, was a systematic deconstruction of all the things they had hoped in. Their trust was not in God. Their trust was in these other things. And what the author seems to be describing here is the false confidence that the people of Jerusalem had. They imagined that that their potential enemies would be something they're immune to. And so this chapter systematically picks apart the false confidences of Jerusalem and the people of Judah. What I want to contend is, I'm paraphrasing from a a commentary that has been very helpful for me in this, is that in this chapter, as we look back into lament, after experiencing kind of this invitation to know and feel the presence and mercy of God, Every single day is this. Suffering shines a bright spotlight on the things in our lives in which we have placed too 
much hope. Suffering is a, is a loud declaration that you do not have control over your life. Suffering is a loud statement that you cannot save yourself. And so I want to walk through this kind of systematic experience of suffering as, as the things they had trust in, things that, that they thought were impregnable, they were invincible. Surely this will never change. We can always count on this. And piece by piece, those false hopes, as, as an Old Testament would call idols, anything that takes the place of God, are systematically deconstructed. Now that shouldn't surprise you. Remember, this is exactly what God did when he set them free from bondage in Egypt. Remember the ten plagues? Those weren't random. Those were systematically digging up the idols, the false gods of the Egyptians. Right? So, so the Egyptians are like, hey, we worship and trust in the sun. And God's like, okay, plague of darkness, right? Like we, we worship and trust in the, the god of thunder. Okay, here's hail that, that crushes trees, right? Uh, we worship the, the god of, of the crops, right? Okay, fine, locusts, frogs, right? We worship the god of the Nile, fine, blood, right? We worship the god of fertility, fine, the, your firstborn child, dead. Except for those delivered by the blood of the lamb. Hear it? The deliverance that came for those people was a result of the systematic deconstruction of the false gods of the Egyptians. It's as if God was saying, I'm not just going to set you free. I'm going to say as loud as I can. And you see this throughout the book of uh, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Leviticus, this language, I am the Lord. You will know that when I deliver you, you will know there is no other God. And so there's a systematic deconstruction of false hopes here as well. I'm going to walk through them. Suffering reveals false hopes. Suffering is an invitation to cry out the experience of loss. Lamentation is simply an acknowledgement not only of the loss, it's an acknowledgement of the futility of trying to make a thing or allowing a thing to make you feel at home in this world. Lament sees the problem beneath the problem. We don't just lament that we lost the thing we loved. We lament how futile it was to think that that could give us comfort in the first place. And so suffering shines a bright spotlight on the things in our lives that we've been hoping in too much. When we lament, we acknowledge that there actually is something broken in this world and there is an ultimate fulfillment that will not come in this lifetime. Now, notice, we don't welcome suffering per se. But Lamentation invites us to say that we do welcome what God is able to do in suffering. Right, so this, if you find yourself going like, you know, I, I just, you're saying I, are you saying I should wish bad things to happen to me? Well, Paul tells us in the New Testament that there's, a, there's an amazing freedom in Christ, that, that all things are rubbish except for knowing him. And he says, I, I want to know the power of Christ, and I want to know his suffering. Not that he necessarily wants the suffering, but what does he want? He wants to experience the resurrection power. So we don't rejoice in suffering as much as we rejoice in that suffering does not hinder God from working. I think we're all grieving the loss of something right now. There's just, if the very, at the very least, you and I have all like 
grieve the loss of something we thought was true maybe 10 months ago. Namely, like we're not really like grass, like human beings are not that fragile. Our way of life really is solid. It's like, yeah, no. An invisible virus comes along and goes, no, not so much. And so here's the thing is, I want to encourage you, the coolest thing is as much as that has been true, I am still overwhelmed as I, as I meet with so many different people and hear about what God has been doing in people's lives over the last, over the last eight months. God is still at work. And that's the thing. God can work in suffering. It does not hinder him from working. And here's the more profound thing. Not only does God work in suffering, but it seems like God works in suffering like he works in no other place. So suffering for these people shone a light into things that they were lamenting but had hoped in. So let's start walking through them together. The first one, did you see this? It's the... The symbols of prosperity, right? The appearance or experience of financial security. Did you catch that? How? Now, this again, this is the first word to the, the very first chapter. And so, especially maybe if you're not a believer, I want to just encourage you with this. Like, the first word of the book of Lamentation was originally its, its title, and it's how. So if you're sitting right now skeptically going like, how can you believe in God, you know, given this? Here's the thing. The book of Lamentation you should, you should love because it's, it asks the exact same question. How could this have happened? How is it that this is going on? So verse 1, how the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold has changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as now earthen pots, the work of the potter's hands. So notice their overwhelming sense of surprise at like, Gold is now tarnished, right? The intarnishable is removed, it's gone. Now, now there's, again, this is poetic language. So in one sense, it's speaking of how they believed they were. They believed that they were like God's precious gift, God's precious metal that existed in the world, thinking surely nothing could change that. But quite literally, as the Babylonians came and wiped out wave after wave, the temple, the palace, Every large structure and then plundered and took all these things back to Babylon. This literally happened. And the symbols of economic prosperity, the symbols of economic comfort were one by one removed. Notice that's one of the first false hopes that I think this chapter invites us to consider. To ask, what are the ways in which you and I have put hope in, trusted in our own financial well-being, our own prosperity? What are the ways in which we really count on the stock market always working its way up? Because for these people, it was evidence that they had not trusted God as their life. They had not hoped in the Lord as their source of well-being and prosperity, they began to really trust in these other things. So what's that for you? Now this is pervasive in what I would say we're experiencing in as, as a, a prolonged period of prosperity that is to be a Western American. But you can see this in some places, right? What is a car? What is a car? What is the vehicle you own? 
Or maybe from maybe you reject those, right? And you're like, I don't own a car. Good for you. Why, right? What is a car? Is it just a means for transportation? Or is it possible that it's become now something more? It's a symbol, isn't it? It's a badge. It's a team. What is a car? What is a house? Is it just a place where you live? Is it a place for shelter? Or is it your only source for protection and comfort? Is it a symbol? Does it say something about you? You get it? What are clothes? What are brand names? These are things that are they're everywhere we look. And if we're not careful, we'll be lulled into thinking that they represent something. They, they symbolize something that, if we're not careful, will pull our trust, hope, and joy away from God who provides all the things we need. And so praise God for prosperity. Praise God for, like, praise God for air conditioning and, and, right, and, and for heating and, and insulation. Right? Praise, God for these, praise God for these things, especially in South Dakota. Right? Like, praise God for these kinds of comforts. But beware. These gifts can make us stop looking to the giver. I say this every time I get a chance when we sing the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. We're tempted just to say, Come Blessing. But no, we want the source of the blessing, and we don't want the blessing to get in our way. So notice how one of the first false hopes, idols, things they had trusted in, was undermined, and and suffering shines a light into that. So friend, one of the best ways to know if you are hoping in or trusting in something more than you should is how you respond when it's threatened or when it's lost. So how have you responded? How do you respond when you see financial security threatened or lost? Right? How do you respond even when you think about financial security being sacrificed willingly? Right? Like, what if I told you the Old Testament people paid more than one tithe to invest in what God was doing in and through his people, right? You feel that if I said, hey, what would it look like for you to sacrificially, painfully, and generously invest in what God is doing in the life of our church? How does that make you feel? Do you feel it? Do you feel how tightly you might have, it, have a grip on these things? And you begin to realize that you don't own the symbols of prosperity. The symbols of prosperity own you. The second thing is, in multiple levels, a false hope that they had evidently placed into, uh, in, into certain things here. We see evidence, and they had a false hope of people. So you look in verse 5 there. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets, right? So the people with the symbols of prosperity, those who were brought up in purple, right? The, think luxury. They're now in the ash heaps. Uh, this is especially important because if I were to give you just some of the categories of people that people had really, like they had really hoped in and really trusted in and, and really kind of found a sense of comfort and, and, and sort of like entertainment or excitement in, like this is really a, this is really a big deal for us. Um, we're at this present moment, I think you would say, this is my observation, we're, we're less a culture of heroes and more a culture of celebrities. Like the people we admire and emulate don't have anything particularly admirable about them. They're just 
famous. And so we're not like, man, you know, you know, this person is really brilliant, smart, humble, kind, right? People of character, integrity, they're well known for the, it's like, they're just famous. They do a thing, they did a thing, they sing a thing, or they own it, right? It's like, and, and, and most of the people that are genuinely admirable and honorable are like strangers. We don't really know them. They're the unsung heroes. And so we're less a culture of heroes, and we don't emulate people and their, and their character. We emulate their fame. Don't miss. That's exactly what they had hoped in as well. The people living the life of luxury were now perishing on the streets. So a question arises again. What are the ways in which you might have an unhealthy fixation on celebrity? Now that may be just because you kind of secretly emulate a celebrity, you listen, you hear everything that celebrity says, or maybe there's just something inside of you that deeply wants to be famous, to be known, to be the center of attention. The book of Lamentations, again, invites you. What, what happens when you feel ignored? What happens when someone else gets attention? Or what happens when your celebrity is the product of open shame? They had hoped in people, and that hope was exposed. That suffering shone a light right into something they had hoped in too much. The second hope they had put in, I would just describe as like kind of leaders. Look, look with me, and, and you see kind of right after that in verse 7, her princes, right? So you see the language of royalty more than once. You see princes, you see kings, and you see at the very end the language of the anointed, right? But it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek anointed. That is the gods anointed, their, their people and their king. But their princes used to be purer than snow, whiter than milk, verse 7 says. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. They were like sapphires, but now they have soot on their face. They have the, 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 the signs of mourning. So again, and this is a time, like I didn't plan this, okay? I promise you, I'm not that smart. God's word is timeless and therefore timely. Again, I didn't see this coming. This is, this is just me being, I, stumble, I tripped and fall in the Bible sometimes, and it happens to land somewhere. And some people are like, I feel like you were just preaching right to me today. And I'm like, uh, you know, one, one, one of two things is true. Either, either the Holy Spirit's at work or I hacked your email, right? Is it possible you have placed a little too much hope in a particular political leader or movement? Is it possible that that kind of false hope has been brought to the surface, I don't know, in the past week? Is it possible Lamentations 4 is an invitation to let loss and suffering shine a light on a hope that you and I readily cling to but has no power to save. And friend, this is an invitation to lament. We are so prone to hope in heroes, political leaders, political parties, political movements. And again, I, I wish I was smart enough to like, here's what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. We're going to land in chapter 4 on election week so we can talk about this. But again, I'm not that smart. And these people were experiencing devastating loss because their leaders 
that they had hoped would deliver them, their leaders that they thought would bring all, all the satisfaction, they, all, all the people that they had hoped in that they were going to bring victory to their team, lost. Now, if you think I'm picking on you, I said similar to this four years ago as well. And I suspect I'll be saying the same thing in four or eight years. Why? Because Lamentations 4 says we are prone to hope in heroes. We are prone to think that, that our guy or our girl, our girl like that, that, that our, our guy, the, the, the guy who represents our team, right, they're going to get us. That's what we need. They're the ones who speak for me and represent me. And just, just know that's a false hope. And you will either repent of it now or lament it later. They had hoped in princes, political leaders. And look at the result. The result of hoping in celebrities you see in verse 6. Chastisement had come upon them. The, the false hope of, of the political leaders, the result you see in chapter 9. Happier were the victims of the sword, right? You, you were better off being just killed immediately than being starved and suffering. But I want you to see something that you've heard me say several times. It's just evidence of brokenness in the world, but I want you to see where I get it from. One of the things I tell, I'll tell you often is that, that we have to be very careful because uh, often when, when we do whatever's right in our own eyes, and we saw this in the journey through the book of Judges, when we do whatever's right, we just kind of do whatever we want. The people who pay for it are the people who are the most at risk. The people who pay for it are almost, almost always women and children. Now, that isn't to like, you know, kind of turn our, our face down at them, but I want you to see where I get that. Did you see what we just read in verse 3 and 4? This brutal image that had burned, kind of been seared onto the, onto the author's consciousness here. Even jackals take care of their better, babies better than this. Even ostriches, right, a animal not known for its nurturing nature. And the children are out begging for food. And no one cares. You see it again in verse 10. The hands of, and now lest you think this is like, oh, a good person would never do this, right? Compassionate women in verse 10 have boiled their own children. They have become their food. Now, we don't know if this is a literal thing that happened in this particular case, but we do know this happened. If you look in 2 Kings 6 and 7, when the, when the Arameans sieged Samaria, the, the nature of things was so awful that there were two women that came to the king and said, hey, yesterday we boiled my child so that we could survive, and tomorrow we're going to boil this woman's child, and now she's hidden her child. And at that, the, the king just tears his clothes and mourns, and it's like it can't get any worse. But notice that it at least tells us that when we start to hope in these things that have no ability to satisfy, when things start to fail, we tend to harm the people most vulnerable. We start to look at ourselves. The explanation, see, in verse 11, the Lord did not hold back. The Lord said, fine, you want this? Take it. And then these people showed their true self. But notice the center of this lament, the false hope, the people they had hoped in were spiritual leaders. Look at verse 13. And these are connected. 
What happens in suffering and how people are oppressed and the victims of injustice is directly related to this. And it's throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. This was, right, verse 13, as if to say, why has this happened, right? Why are things so awful? And it says, this, this awful thing that's taken place was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests. And it even says again that, that ultimately this was happening and, and their result was even on their elders, their religious leaders. This is an invitation for us to reflect on our tendency, I think, to put false hope in religious leaders. To put false hope in our, right, again, I'm, I'm speaking to Christians here. If unbelievers were to hear this, you'd, you'd think I was just talking crazy, and I probably am. But like that hero pugilistic culture where we kind of want our hero to fight in, to fight in, the, in the Colosseum, that isn't just a pagan thing. I, I mean, Christians do this. You ever, you ever heard somebody quote their favorite Christian hero more than they quote the Bible? You ever heard the tendency for people in Christian culture to like, to like ask what you think about some Christian author rather than what the Bible says? Have you heard this? What do you think about that person? What do you think about them? And look at this, this pagan pugilism has infected us. And, and just realize it's, it's an evidence of something we're prone to do. And that is to put our hope in religious leaders. And religious leaders fail. They fall. They fall like the rest of us. They just fall louder and more publicly. I'm not standing up here preaching because I need less grace than you. I'm not standing up here preaching because I've got this more figured out than you. I'm standing up here preaching because I need more grace than all of you combined. I'm standing up here preaching because above all, I need forgiveness. I need mercy. I'm the, I, I know the least. And the more I know, the less I think I, the less I realize I know. So don't put your hope in me. Now, hopefully that won't be a problem for me. You're like, check, done, right? <laughs> Wasn't going to do that, right? But if, if this is true, if we're prone to kind of look to someone else to be the hero, if we, we're prone to look to the person, right, to, to be our, our, you know, our, our jousting partner in, in the arena, then we, we tend to look to religious leaders. And look, that failed as well. Because after all, one of the most egregious things that was done here, and you see this in, in the prophet Micah and elsewhere, is that false prophets had spoken up. Now just notice throughout the, all of the Old Testament, these are connected, right? These people are being mistreated, right? These children are being mistreated. And, and over and over and over again, the prophet Jeremiah and the prophet Isaiah are like, hey guys, stop doing this. Hey guys, stop doing it. No, really, God's going God's gonna to get mad. He's going to mess all this up. Just stop doing this. Stop oppressing people. Stop committing acts of injustice. Stop taking advantage of the poor, the fatherless, right? We read this in Amos and Isaiah, right? And God's really mad. He doesn't even want to, he's, he's really, he's really he, he abhors, he detests your worship services because you keep ignoring the fatherless, right? And the false prophets are the ones who always come along and maintain the status quo. They say, peace, no, it's cool, man. Things are good. The true prophet holds up the mirror and says, that, that's wrong. Stop doing that. And the false prophet says, hey, 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 you're good. You don't change a thing. And so notice that they had identified with people who told them exactly what they wanted to hear. Namely, you're fine. You don't need to repent. 
And that cost the lives of the people who were most vulnerable. I believe that's a timeless word. And lament is our way through addressing injustice. Lament is our way through addressing mistreatment. And here's, I'll just say, like, don't ever recommend a solution for injustice until you lament it. Weep with those who weep. And be open to the possibility that our prosperity, did you catch this? Comes at the cost of the most vulnerable. And that is something that brings on the unbridled full wrath of God. And for anyone to say, no, it's not that bad, isn't reflecting the heart of God and the language of lamentation. They started to lament another false hope, their kind of cultural decay. Look at verse 17, if you want to, with me. You can see there, our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched, now get this, for a nation, a nation which could not save. They had hoped in their national identity. Now, at some point, they'd actually hoped that other nations would save. They, they called on the Egyptians. Hey, come help us out. False hope. But I want you to see, this is, a, this is something that the Old Testament addresses regularly. Psalm 33, put it this way. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. Did you hear that? the language of the most advanced military technology at that time when this was written. It's a false hope. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in, not the war horse, not not their might or strength, but who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him. So now let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon me, even as we hope in you. you They had hoped that the nation could say they had a national identity. Well, we're God's chosen people. So therefore, we're going to be impervious to God's discipline. And so my, you know, the, the kind of populist and nationalistic movement that's sweeping not only our own country over the last couple of decades, but even the world, right? I, I, I get it. It's, it's the response to a lot of change that's happened that's left us feeling afraid and out of control over the last 60, 70 years. We've experienced more change in the last few decades than many generations have experienced for centuries before us. And that leaves us feeling afraid. And in that fear, we can turn to, well, as long as, as, long as I have my team. But my worry about that kind of nationalistic, populistic fervor that's sweeping not only our country but also the world although it makes sense and it's perfectly understandable, might be something that's turning into a false hope. And so here's the thing. I love the United States. Love it, man. Love it. It's a a brilliant, a brilliant and and beautiful experiment. Right? I love our Constitution. I love love these things. Here's the thing, and I've, I've, I've read it a lot. The name of Jesus, I just can't find in the Constitution. 
I can't find it in the Bill of Rights. I can't find the word Christ anywhere in these founding documents. And so while I love it, it's awesome. It can be, again, I'm all for Memorial Day, barbecues, Fourth of July fireworks. It was America, right? But it can be, and I would argue that even in the last several years, it has become a false hope. Did you see what they were lamenting? We were watching for a nation that couldn't save us. Psalm 146 is a a profound reminder of this. Verse 3, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. But blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them, who keeps his faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, and who gives food to the hungry. They had hoped in a divine favor such that they thought no one could harm them. But here's the last little bit. Notice in verse 21, the language and the attention turns now to Edom. Crash course in Edom. Edom is known as like the descendants of Esau. And you'll see in the, in the prophet Obadiah, I encourage you to read that. Uh, it take you not very long this week. Um, and it's a word to Edom. Even though Jacob and Esau had reconciled, the descendants of Edom still held a grudge, right? And so this word of Edom, this word to Edom, evidently was because you see in verse 21, Evidently, whenever things started to to go bad for Jerusalem, the people of Edom, instead of coming to help, they laughed. They helped the Babylonians, and they sat there and just rejoiced in the suffering of Jerusalem. So notice what we see here. This this divine favor that they had hoped. They thought that they were going to be exempt from this, this discipline, but when it came... Everyone's true colors were shown, and Edom laughed at them and rejoiced in them. And so notice the contrast. Rejoice, like tongue-in-cheek, go ahead, laugh at our suffering. But in verse 22, the punishment for our iniquity is over. You can laugh at our suffering, but you need to, you can laugh, but just know our exile is temporary. There will be a time coming when we will be delivered from exile. There will be a hero that will come. Did you hear that? And where the prophets have failed, he will succeed. Where the priests have failed, he will succeed. Where the kings have failed, he will succeed. We are in exile. Laugh all you want. But one day, our perfect prophet, priest, and king is coming, and our exile will be temporary. But yours Yours, who do not look to and hope for that day, is not. Our prophet, priest, and king is Jesus, who in every way that these prophets, priests, and kings failed here, in every way that they were false hopes for these people, he is the fulfillment. He is the perfect perfect satisfaction for our hopes. He gives all the things that we long for. And then when you trust in him, you experience this exile and suffering and lament in this life as but a moment. Let me put it this way. Believers will lament in this life only. But unbelievers, 
will rejoice in this life only. Let me encourage you, believer, this, as awful as this may be, as difficult as your life may be, as the pain and suffering overwhelms you because of your own sin or because of the sin of others, friend, this is as close to hell as you'll ever be. This is the closest thing to hell as you will ever experience. But friend, if you turn from God and reject him and don't look to him for hope, then I want to warn you to the unbeliever, this is as close a thing to heaven as you will ever experience. This is as good as it gets. But for us, as suffering reveals what we tend to hope in, and it reveals our inability to save ourselves, it it reveals the inability for people and things to save us, as well as our inability to save ourselves. As we grieve the loss of those things, as we experience the discomfort and suffering that comes, we know that it is temporary. Because of Christ, and here's the thing, if you're like, this is, this is awful, right? If you come in this room and you're like, this is terrible, I get to tell you, you're right, it is. And praise God, this is as bad as it'll get. And it may get worse over the next days, months, and years. And yet, a day is coming when that exile, verse 22 says, will be no longer. So friend, listen to Paul's word to the Corinthians. As you grieve, grieve in a way, as it says, that leads you to hope in Christ. He says, as it is, I rejoice, not because you're grieved. I'm not glad that any of you are suffering. But he says, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief. Do you feel that? Do you feel a a holy discontentment with suffering in the world, injustice in the world, with sin in your own heart? Do you long for the day when you will stop sinning, you'll stop lusting and stop hating? Do you long for the day when when injustice will no longer be a thing? That godly grief ends up serving us. That grief leads us to look to him for deliverance. Verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Just stop for a minute there. I don't even know if I know what that's like. Have you experienced God's grace and forgiveness so much that you don't even regret things? (laughs) I long for that to be more and more true even for me. Because I still, I'm like, well, you know, I, I'm really bad. I, I feel bad that that happened. I, I kind of secretly am like, God, if you gave me another chance, I wouldn't do it again. Right? But that's regret. That's, that's this false hope. Like, yeah, if I, if, I had, if I had a round two, I would not make the same mistakes twice. And God, being mercy, knows that's wrong. Right? Nope, you're an idiot. You, you would definitely do it again. In fact, here's the way you keep doing it again. But he says there's evidently a kind of grief that causes us to look to God for salvation and a deliverance that comes that frees us from any regret over the past. And all the crying, all the suffering, all the sorrow will be something that is something behind us. But worldly grief produces death. So friend, have you experienced trial? I know it hurts. I know it's difficult. But allow God to shine a light with that suffering into the ways in which you and I might have been hoping in something that couldn't save us anyway. 
And when it falls apart, when, when all the false hopes fall apart, right? When, when the symbols of prosperity fail, when the, when the culture falls apart around us, right? When our leaders fail and disappoint, when the things we're hoping fail, experience grief, grieve, Christian, grieve loudly, grieve proudly, because you know that that godly grief is evidence that this is temporary. Our exile is but a moment, our peace and comfort in his presence never comes to an end. Let's pray together and thank God that that's true. God, you are rich in mercy, abounding in steadfast love, and I thank you especially that you are slow to anger. I thank you that you are not surprised when we experience sorrow. I thank you for the freedom that comes in knowing that we can cry out to you we can cry out to you for things that, that cause suffering and injustice and know that, that our exile is, is but a temporary experience. In fact, it's a suffering that isn't even worth comparing to the joy that will be revealed. So maybe if there's some within the sound of my voice who haven't looked to Jesus in hope and they're experiencing sorrow and suffering, would now be the time, would today be the day, would this moment be the moment that they turn from suffering and look to hope in Christ? Would the current grief that they feel be an invitation to consider that they were not made for happiness in this world, but they were made for happiness in a world that is to come? Would our current dissatisfaction with the kingdoms of this world remind us of a, a hunger that can only be satisfied by the kingdom that is to come? For those of us who have received that salvation, now free us from regret. Free us from any entanglements, anything that would hinder us from having free and unbridled joy and comfort in God alone. Thank you that you have not abandoned us to this sorrow, but our sorrow is temporary. Our exile is but a moment. Thank you that our exile is lifted and the great Redeemer, the great Savior, through his death and resurrection delivers us. Thank you that we get this in Jesus' name. Amen.